Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 106 of Compliance Into the Weeds, the only podcast that takes a deep dive, literally going into the weeds for a compliance or compliance-related topic. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. But first, have you ever thought of starting your own podcast? As I've expanded the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm always on the lookout for new podcasts. If you'd like to consider starting your own podcast but don't really know how to do so, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, Matt and I take a look at some of his issues that he believes are going to be important for compliance and compliance practitioners going forward into 2019. It's a fascinating exploration. We link to his blog post in the show notes. I know you will enjoy this episode. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Radical Compliance, the podcast where, with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive, uh, literally going into the weeds to uh, consider a compliance or compliance-related topic. Today, you're in for a real treat because it's one of my favorite podcasts of the year, which is Matt's pontificating of the year which will be in the veiled future. So, Matt, with that uh, uh, introduction, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here and to pontificate for our listeners. And uh, as I forgot to add, Matt Kelly is also monikered as the coolest guy in compliance. So you're going to have some very cool pontification going forward. So, Matt, uh, as is your want, you wrote about... Uh, compliance issues for 2019, uh, not a retrospective, but a look forward. And you came up with nine uh, issues. So I thought maybe um, we might just take those. You want to uh, kind of give us a highlights? Yeah, sure. So these are nine issues that, uh, you know, they cut across a very wide range of ethics, compliance, risk management concerns. Uh, there is not any particular rhyme or reason to the complete set except most of these, I think, are the practical implications of things we did see, like break, for lack of a better word, events that happened in 2018, precedents set, rules adopted, stuff like that. How is that really going to work? I think that's what's worth looking at in 2019. So I have nine of them, uh, because nine for 19, that rhymes. And... Um, I will go through three at a time, and then, Tom, we can talk about whichever ones you think uh, catch people's fancy the most. Um, okay. Number one, I will be looking for any whistleblower award reforms from the Securities and Exchange Commission this year. People might remember that last summer, the SEC proposed a suite of reforms for its whistleblower awards program where they were going to give more awards or give the commission was going to give itself more discretion to hand out more awards for larger sums of money at the small end. Anything below $2 million for an award is going to give itself much more discretion to hand that out. They were also going to cap large awards at no more than $10 million, which is controversial and some people would say is not in the statute of the Dodd-Frank Act. So I'll be curious to see 
all right, SEC, you put out the ideas, you got public feedback. What are we going to do? Are we going to see real changes here? Is somebody going to change, uh, challenge these proposals in court? I would bet yes. Um, and then we'll see what happens there. Second of uh, my first group of three, I think, is innovation in anti-money laundering compliance. Uh, just in December, all of the banking regulators got together, put a very unusual statement out, and they said, we are all for innovation in AML compliance because it is onerous. So financial firms, go forth and go nuts. Go innovate to your heart's content. If you innovate and your pilot program doesn't work, we won't fault you. If you innovate and you find that your pre-existing compliance program didn't work as well as you thought, we might not even hold you responsible for that so long as you move forward. We just want innovation, innovation. Sounds great. That happened in December. Now it's 2019. Financial firms, what are you going to do to innovate? I will be curious to see that. And uh, then I also am curious about any more uh, indicia, I guess, indicia we could get from the Justice Department on the FCPA enforcement issues, uh, because it felt in 2018 like the Justice Department was um, rescinding or relaxing all sorts of policies around FCPA enforcement, so long as that got the companies to step forward and self-disclose, cooperate with investigations, and remediate the weaknesses. Uh, you know, they would get forgiveness across a wide range of possible punitive actions. Very generous from the Justice Department. Will that actually change companies thinking to, in favor of we're going to disclose as soon as we're aware of it? Or are they going to keep their mouths shut and hope that nobody notices? Because it's not like we have a government shutdown or budget constraints or staff cuts or anything else. You know, all that stuff factors in, you know, you you may not be wrong if you're a very cynical person to think, I'm just going to keep quiet and hope nobody ever sees catches it. They might not ever catch it. So how is that going to shake out? So those are my first three, AML innovation, FCPA enforcement, and whistleblower award reforms. I don't know if you have any thoughts or observations, Tom, but those are my that's my first chunk. So I guess, Matt, if we could maybe take the second one, because I was equally intrigued by the uh, banking regulators. Uh, uh, these were federal banking regulators who really ins uh, uh, said they would not uh, punish companies who engaged in innovative techniques, whether it be punishment for these techniques not working in a pilot program or uncovering uh, gaps or deficiencies in, in a prior program. Um, but it led me to wonder, is this something that the government would consider in other types of compliance? Obviously, uh, uh, we play a lot in anti-corruption compliance, but there's export control compliance. There's data privacy, data security compliance. There's a, a number of other compliances that we write and talk about. And is this something that the government uh, really wants to, to push is, is innovation? And will they consider an innovation, uh, even if it does uh, un unlock or un 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 open up a prior deficiency or if the innovation doesn't work? Is this something, could we tie this really to what the uh, Department of Justice did with the uh, forgiveness uh, incentives around uh, some of the FCPA uh, policies that they announced in 2018? You know, I think that it is very interesting because we do see that when the Justice Department in particular, when they announce that they want to have some change in enforcement, a lot of the civil agencies quickly follow suit and say, yeah, us too. 
So um, would we see a similar dynamic outside of the financial sector now that the banking regulators are laying down this marker? Now, that said, my other only hesitation about what the banking regulators are saying is these are the federal banking regulators. This is not the banking regulator of New York State. Um, and in New York State, the Department of Financial Services may take a very different view about um, you know, use of innovation, pilot programs, holding companies uh, feet to the fire if their innovation discovers some prior deficiency that you didn't know about. Um if you discover this and the feds say that's fine because you're innovating, are you opening yourself up if you are subject to New York state regulation? Might they take a different view? I do not know, but um, there has been no shortage of examples in the past of New York DFS dancing to its own tune, no matter what the federal regulators are doing. So that'll be one thing to, to watch with that one. Um I guess if we could actually have some breaking news on compliance into the weeds, Linda Lacewell was announced as the new nominee to head the DFS, and she certainly has not had an opportunity to give her thoughts on this. So perhaps even that issue is cloudier. Yes, that is true. Um, it is worth noting that she is the chief of staff of Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. Um I don't necessarily know if he did a global search for the uh, best possible candidate and then wound up picking his right-hand person. But that is, in fact, what he did just do. Um, my next group of three things to watch in 2019, uh, two of them relate to privacy. Uh, I am curious to see if Congress will finally adopt some sort of national privacy law. There's been a lot of talk about that. Uh, even in the Senate, the Republicans have said, held hearings and basically have been proposing or tinkering with legislation to get to some sort of privacy law. Uh, now, what would the House say now that it's under Democratic control? I do not know. Um, the real question is going to be, will Congress pass a federal breach disclosure law that would preempt state law? And this is the political dynamic I think compliance officers want to be aware of, is that it exists in two dimensions. There's the traditional Democrat versus Republican. Uh, a lot of Democrats would, in theory, like to give states some authority, um, but they also would like you know, a privacy law that businesses probably would not like. And of course, Republicans, no surprise, the other way around. Uh, but we also have this extra dimension of states versus the federal government, regardless of who's a Democrat or who's a Republican. So this is going in two different directions at once. That makes it very difficult to thread the needle to get a privacy law that people would actually accept. Um, that said, Facebook and the other tech companies have done themselves no favors in trying to convince the public that they don't need this. I think everybody now agrees that they do. Even the big tech companies like Apple with Tim Cook, he said the time is here for some sort of privacy regulation. Don't know what that's going to be. But I do think that 2019 is the window to do it, because once we get into 2020 and we all lose our minds with the election campaigns, it's not going to happen then. It's going to happen this year if it does happen at all for the foreseeable future. And then in a related vein, I am curious to see what a GDPR enforcement might actually look like. We've seen some little ones here and there, but I am particularly looking at Facebook and I am looking at the Marriott breach, which were big breaches of sensitive stuff, and they happened after the GDPR went into effect. So if privacy regulators wanted to set an example for someone, 
I could easily see a big fine for Facebook. I could see a significant fine for Marriott. Um, we could talk about how all those things came to pass, but uh, this is probably, I think, going to be the year that a privacy regulator in Europe sends a GDPR warning shot, and I think it will probably be a big one. Um, and then my last of the third for this little bucket of uh, items to watch, I'm actually really intrigued about the idea of restive employees. And I mean that as in employees are getting better and better at forcing their companies to address really difficult ethical issues. I thought one of the most interesting things that happened last year for corporate ethics and compliance was when Google employees basically told Google, we don't want to work on a AI defense contract with the Pentagon because we don't like the Trump administration. So don't do it. Don't bid on the contract. And Google didn't bid on the contract. Google had the contract. It was up for renewal. And they basically said, our employees don't want us to do this because we don't like the Trump administration, so we're not going to do it. Um, I think that the ability for employees, even allied with customers and other consumers and the public out there, for them to ally themselves on social media and bring really difficult ethical pressures to bear on corporate America, that ability is getting stronger. And it's going to lead to some difficult questions boards really don't want to confront, especially with a, a the biggest third party in this country of all is the Trump administration. It's a huge consumer of goods and services. It has a terrible reputation, especially among consumer companies and tech companies where the employees, if they don't want to do this, company doesn't have a choice. You're not going to do it, folks, because your employees aren't going to do it. And in a tight economy, a Google engineer will have a of the competing job offers before he leaves the the conference room just to announce his resignation. So that's another one that I think we're going to see that magnify over time. And I suspect actually come 2020, if Donald Trump is running for re-election, it's going to be an awful lot of companies that say, could we avoid this? No, you can't. But that's that's going to be something that gets bigger this year and into next year. So I have the two privacy, U.S. and GDPR and rest of employees. That's my next big three. And I'll, I'll take a break. So let me start with the last one, because you then added the point that I wanted to raise with you, which is that it's not just restive employees. It's an entire another group of stakeholders that have not typically been considered, at least from the corporate governance perspective, when a corporation is, is making decisions like these. Uh, and some of those other stakeholders are the customer base, but can also be a much broader uh, social base as well. And I really, I hope we can do a, another podcast on this because I've been thinking about this a lot and yeah. reading a lot about it over the holiday season. Uh, you know, is this Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand? Is this a market response to a social issue? Is this something different? And how do corporations, which uh, are usually judged by, did they deliver a uh, return on investment to their shareholders as, if not the sole judge, the most important judge, do they have to take uh, many of these other issues into account now? And even if they do not have to legally, uh, th as a practical matter, must they do so to do things like hire um, millennials, uh, hire people, uh, bring people in, continue to do business and not be blasted on social media? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I really I, find that to be one of the most interesting developments. 
I, I think that to a certain extent, this is an extension of what we saw with the Me Too movement in 2017 and 2018, uh, where employees were starting to use social media to pressure companies to do the ethical thing and sack whatever superstar was, in fact, just grabbing the interns and being inappropriate. And now we're going to start seeing it in other types of issues. And I should say, I think the politics of this will generally flow to the left because the Trump administration is not popular, but it will not always flow to the left. Uh, I think the other counterexample for Google is when Dick's Sporting Goods announced that it would no longer sell assault rifles. Um, the gun owners and the gun rights activists in this country went nuts on social media and threatened boycotts of Dick's Sporting Goods. And Dick's has suffered uh, drops in revenue and profits since it announced that. So this is going to be one of those things where no matter what you do, if you're a large company, you're going to annoy at least 40 percent of the, co the country and you're going to have to deal with it. But in many cases, the employees and customers are going to come at you from all sorts of different directions. And once they form alliances together on social media, that's going to be a really powerful pressure that they exert. I'll be curious to see how that works. So Let me go back and tie uh, privacy oh, yeah. law. Go ahead. No, go right ahead with the privacy question. Yeah, yeah I wanted to tie tie maybe U.S. privacy law to GDPR enforcement uh, and ask, uh, or at least ask you to, to speculate, could or would the U.S. even consider a privacy law as robust as GDPR? And if they don't, and they have something lesser, does that mean companies either have a two-tiered privacy system, or do they just have to adhere to really the, the gold standard, which is GDPR? Well... That's a really, I mean, it is a very good question. It's a very complicated question. Um, I think, you know, my very first thought is that do we have a GDPR-like law? Will it come to the United States? Well, it's already essentially come in California where they've adopted a privacy law that goes into effect, I believe, in 2020. But it is very similar to the GDPR, very far-reaching compared to other state privacy laws. Um, I know that there are jurisdictions like Japan and I want to say Brazil, but don't hold me to that, that are moving to GDPR types of national standards. Um, so if you are a global company, it is a very good question to ask is who cares? Because I already have the GDPR breathing down my neck. I'm hard pressed to see how somebody who is compliant with the GDPR would not be compliant with other U.S. or state-level laws because the GDPR is so onerous. I mean, I can't imagine we would adopt something more far-reaching than the GDPR. Um, but for many companies, I think the really the big issue will be that you're subject to some sort of a privacy law with your customers, and you don't know it because you were unaware of who exactly your customer was. How many companies out there listening? Can you list all of your customers who are EU citizens? Are you absolutely certain? Because if you can't, you may or may not have a GDPR risk and you don't know it. And if that dynamic starts replicating with Japan or Canada or Brazil or California, yeah, it gets really sticky really fast. And I don't have a good answer. I would love to hear Jonathan Armstrong's opinion on this the next time we have him discussing these issues. But I do think that um, the U.S. privacy law I, I can't believe we're not going to do something about it this year, but for the life of me, I just I can't believe we're actually going to reach consensus on something so important because we can't reach consensus on anything. But uh, here we are. My final three. Um, 
One, I want to keep an eye on the GRC vendors who are out there because people might recall that both Navex Global and LRN uh, both received large private equity infusions. Um, Navex essentially, they, Navex has a new private equity owner now who gave it a recapitalization, and LRN only said that it got a significant private equity infusion. Wouldn't confirm or deny that LRN has been sold to majority stake to a private equity owner. I, I read between the lines. I think that might be what happened. But bottom line is, both of these firms, who are not small, whose salespeople call up your listeners, our listeners, all the time to have demos and whatnot, they both have received large cash infusions to expand what they are doing. Um, I know for a fact that other GRC vendors will be announcing more investments uh, in 2019. Uh, there is a lot of money pouring into this sector. So therefore, what are the vendors going to do with it? Um, certainly, here's a spoiler, more of their salespeople are going to be calling you up, asking you to try this demo or join this webinar. That is going to happen. There are some wonderful products. So you know, if you want to listen to the webinar and take the call, that's your choice. But I do wonder, will we see some of these vendors buying other vendors? Uh, will we see some sort of consolidation? Um, I don't know. I do think that if recession comes to pass in 2019, which I am skeptical that it will in 2019, but if it does, I think you'd see a lot of consolidation pretty quick. But I don't know exactly who might buy whom or who might add what product offering to their lineup. But there's a lot of money flowing into this sector. Clearly, that is a vote in favor of ethics and compliance because the private equity people would not put money into this field if they didn't think they would get some money back out in the future. Um, I'll be curious to see how that all goes. And the last two I have are more related to accounting and auditing. Compliance people who went to law school, hear me out. I promise this is relevant to you. Um, the new lease accounting rule goes into effect this year for your first filing period uh, or your first fiscal year that ends after December 15, 2017. So throughout or 20, December 15 of 2018, last month, all of your next fiscal years that begin from now forward are going to be under this new lease accounting rule. The accounting part itself is not that hard to understand. All of your operating lease costs that you have have been reported in the footnotes. They've been buried down there. Now they're going to be moved up to the balance sheet going to be a lot of money for a lot of companies in retail, transportation, technology. They lease a lot of equipment. So they're going to see that suddenly that be much more prominent on their balance sheet. The question is, and this is where suddenly IT systems and contract management and training and policy all comes into play. Do you know all the operating leases your enterprise has? Are you sure that Tim or Susan in the Peoria division didn't sign a lease without telling you and has it tucked away in a spreadsheet somewhere and you don't know it. And then you report and your balance sheet liabilities are wrong because nobody told what's their name in the Malaysia division or the Mongolia division, please use this new form so we can capture all the lease data. If you get that wrong, there could potentially be some pretty big consequences in the CFO's office. Uh, so getting that right is going to be important. Now, the good news According to a recent study from Ernst & Young, 85% of corporate accountants that they surveyed say that they would meet the deadline for the new lease accounting rule. The bad news is that 86% said we're going to use an interim solution 
for the time being. Well, then now we're right back to completeness of reports, data management, contract management, all this stuff. Do we know where all of our data is? Many companies probably don't uh, or are not as confident or is more confident than they should be. So that's that's one concern I have. And then that brings me to my last item, the ninth for 2019. While all of this uncertainty is happening with the lease accounting rule, starting in July and going forward, we will have a new format for external auditors reports that get published along with your 10K. And that is going to include critical audit matters where the audit firm will be disclosing issues it has discussed with your audit committee that are heavily involved in judgments or estimates or subjective judgment, a lot of things like that. So audit firms are going to be looking at unclear processes and trying to figure out, are these unclear processes, are they a critical audit matter? Does this company, you know, do we have any concerns here? If we do, we're going to put it in our report. Well, this interim solution for lease accounting, I think, represents a possible critical audit matter because you're going to be making this up on the fly. You're going to be using these judgments. You're not entirely sure that we're 100 percent correct. We might be 99 percent. It might be a critical audit matter. It might not. But the audit firm is going to start looking at issues just like that and start to push you harder on it. So then that is going to lead the audit team and the finance and accounting team to lean more on business processes to make sure this is not as subjective, this is not as judgment-based, so that we can get away from the critical audit matter disclosure, which nobody is really going to want, but you're probably going to have anyways. Um, Critical audit matters are going to be a growing pain for several years, but this is the first year that we're going to have them, just as this rather significant accounting change around operating leases is hitting. So... You have this one-two punch around documentation management, stuff like that, that I I wonder how that's going to play out towards the latter half of 2019 and uh, how your audit is going to go and how your audit fees are going to land. But we'll find out in another six or seven or nine months. So let me go back to the least accounting rules, because this is something you've been writing and talking about, Matt, um, at least for nine months and maybe even longer back. Um do you think the message just hasn't gotten out yet? No, I think uh, it depends on to the message to whom. The, the, do the CFOs know this is coming? Yes. Do the accounting departments know this is coming? Yes. Are there audit firms working with them mightily to make sure this is as least painful as possible? Yes. Um, but for many companies, this could be a very delicate thing that if you have, a, for example, a debt covenant – that uh, if your liabilities exceed a certain threshold, uh, we're going to call the loan. And you have to be aware of that. Well, you can talk your way through that with the lease standard because remember what's happening. All these lease expenses are now liabilities. Your liabilities are going up. You would have to know that's going to happen. You'd have to talk to your revolving debt facility people, your banks, to make sure that you don't trip a debt covenant by mistake. Um, But... If you do all of that and everything seems fine, and then you find out that your Far East division didn't get the memo, and they have all these lease accounting expenses that you know they didn't report, and now you have to add them on, and now suddenly your liabilities goose up over the threshold, and you weren't prepared for it, and now you've tripped your your debt covenant. You know, now the CFO is going to be furious over this, and you're, everybody's going to be in a jam. So it's that sort of very delicate 
finesse that people know about in the finance office and in the accounting office. But how do you translate that this is important and get the right processes, especially for salespeople or real estate people or legal people who might be signing contracts and don't know necessarily all the nuances of accounting policy and why this is so important? That's where the rubber is going to meet the road. Um, and certainly, if you've got all of your lease data stored in spreadsheets here, there, and everywhere, and you're, like, you're going to miss it up. You are. You're going to forget something somewhere, and then it may not be material. It could be for companies, say, in the restaurant business, where all you do is you rent out um, restaurant space nationwide if you're a big fast food retailer. This could be a big deal, um, and you just people know about it who have to worry about it, but those who don't understand that they need to worry about it, they're the ones that I, I worry about them. Rather tortured statement, but that's where we are. So the, um, the GRC vendors, uh, do you also observe that uh, there's a, really a large amount of private equity money coming in uh, to the compliance space, both for vendors and service providers? Uh, I mean, I don't have any hard numbers on how much private equity is out there specifically to invest in governance, risk, and compliance. Uh, we do know that there is private equity all over the place in the world, and they are desperately looking for good returns. Um, and we are seeing this trend now of private equity buying companies, and in the old days, you would buy it, you would groom it so it could go public. Now you're seeing private equity firms buying companies, improving their operations, and then selling them to other private equity companies. Um, that is what happened to Navex. In disclosure, I do paid work for Navex from time to time. They didn't tell me about any of this. This is just observation from what's publicly available. Um, but you know, Navex was owned by one private equity company and then sold to another private equity company. Historically, that would have been 20 years ago. That would have been very rare. These days, it's not. Um, how much private equity is specifically looking at uh, GRC opportunities? Like I said, I don't have hard numbers, but you know, there's no shortage of private equity people who call me up from time to time and just ask me what's going on. There's an interest and an appetite there. And when you think about it, show me the world, show me the 2020s or the 2030s where effective risk management, effective compliance programs become less important. Show me the world where we're going to start going backwards and we're not going to have to worry about very carefully constructed systems and highly interdependent businesses with so many third parties where that's all going to go away and therefore compliance and risk management will be less important. Show me the future where that is the case because I don't see it. And if the need is going to be there, the money will follow. And there is a lot of money out there that's going to follow any need it can find. This need is pretty clear and easy to find. Well, Matt, this has just been a fascinating uh, exploration of some very salient and, and very pointed issues that hopefully we can uh, explore at greater depth uh, going forward into 2019. I hope so, too. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I'm going to link to Matt's blog post in the show notes, so check it out. There's a lot of great information and hyperlinks in there. Hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic of compliance going into the weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.